Um, this reading is from Galatians 3, verses 1 to 14. It's in the message translation. You crazy Galatians, did someone put a hex on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened. For it's obvious you no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. His sacrifice on the cross was certainly set before you clearly enough. Let me put this question to to you. How did your new life begin? Was it by working your heads off to please God? Or was it by responding to God's message to you? Are you going to continue this craziness? For only crazy people would think they could complete by their own efforts what was begun by God. If you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin it, how do you suppose that you could perfect it? Did you go through this whole painful learning process for nothing? It is not yet a total loss, but it certainly will be if you keep this up. Answer this question. Does the God who lavishly provides you with his own presence, his Holy Spirit, working things in your lives you could never do for yourselves, does he do these things because of your strenuous moral striving or because you trust him to do them in you? Don't these things happen among you just as they happened with Abraham? He believed God, and that act of belief was turned into a life that was right with God. Is it not obvious to you that persons who put their trust in Christ, not persons who put their trust in the law, are like Abraham, children of faith? It was all laid out beforehand in Scripture that God would set things right with non-Jews by faith. Scripture anticipated this in the promise to Abraham, all nations will be blessed in you. So those now who live by faith are blessed along with Abraham who lived by faith. This is no new doctrine. And that means that anyone who tries to live by his own effort, independent of God, is doomed to failure. Scripture backs this up. Utterly cursed is every person who fails to carry out every detail written in the book of the law. The obvious impossibility of carrying out such a moral program should make it plain that no one can sustain a relationship with God that way. The person who lives in right relationship with God does it by embracing what God arranges for him. Doing things for God is the opposite of entering into what God does for you. Habakkuk had it right. The person who believes God is set right by God, and that's the real life. Rule-keeping does not naturally evolve into living by faith, but only perpetuates itself in more and more rule-keeping, a fact observed in Scripture. The one who does these things, rule-keeping, continues to live by them. Christ redeemed us from that self-defeating, cursed life by absorbing it completely into himself. Do you remember the scripture that says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree? That is what happened when Jesus was nailed to the cross. He became a curse, and at the same time dissolved the curse. And now, because of that, the air is cleared, and we can see that Abraham's blessing is present and available for non-Jews too. We are all able to receive God's life his spirit, in and with us by believing just the way Abraham received it.
Evening. Just checking you there. It's um, it's me, the vicar, again. It's part four of God's unfolding story, this six-act drama that we're in, looking at the whole of Scripture from Genesis through to Revelation. And today uh, we are in this beautiful bit of the story where we center in on the person of Jesus Christ. So here's the little uh, plan that we're working through. Hopefully this will work. Um, Johnny, can you just see why the click is not working? Uh, that'd be great. And move on to the next slide, Kez. That'd be great. Uh, we're in this sixth act drama. We've looked at creation, then fall, and Israel. That was the last few weeks. And today we're looking in at Jesus and how he comes to become the king of the world, to re-establish the rule and reign of God over all creation. So if you've missed any, I want to encourage you to get back onto track by going online, listening to the talks that we've had so far. That'll be great. Now, what I want to encourage you to do is, uh, as you uh, think about this, is to remember uh, something really important about the gospel writers. There are four gospels, four stories of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're different, but essentially they're all trying to do the same thing. All of them want us to grasp that Jesus only makes sense when seen as part of a much larger, longer story, the story of the Bible, the story of human history that we're working our way through in this series. So you need to read them alongside one another to get the whole picture. They all emphasize different things. Mark, he starts with... We'll come to him in a moment. Uh, He reminds us of the Old Testament prophecies of one who would prepare the way for the Messiah. Matthew, he looks a little bit further back. He's keen to demonstrate that you can root the story of Jesus in the story of Israel in the Old Testament that was begun in Abraham, and we looked at that last week, if you remember. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus enters history in order to complete Israel's story by fulfilling the law for them. We'll come back to that idea in a moment. Luke, he goes all the way back to Adam. And he's keen to show that the good news about Jesus has significance for all humankind. And John, John writes a new genesis entirely. And he goes right back to a time before creation to show us that Jesus is the eternal, uncreated word, present with God from the very beginning. So four different stories that all come alongside one another and make sense of this incredible chapter in the story of the whole world that unlocks everything that follows. Jesus is the hinge of human history. You want to understand the world? You want to understand the story of the world? You have to understand Jesus. Okay, and we know that. But actually, I would say that to anybody, wherever they were from, whatever they believed. Jesus is the incarnation of God into human history. To incarnate means literally to put on flesh, We celebrate that at Christmas, that Jesus becomes one of us. We are working our way through this drama of Scripture, and one of the books that's really helpful is a book called that by uh, these guys, Goheen and Bartholomew, and they say this. We cannot grasp the meaning of the story of Jesus until we begin to see that it is in fact the climactic episode of the great story of the Bible. When his good creation was fouled by human rebellion, God immediately set out on a salvage mission. He had created it, and it thus belonged to him by right. Now he would redeem it, so that it might be restored to what he had always intended it to be. In God's purpose, at last, 
The very heavens and earth themselves are to be renewed and restored. In Jesus Christ, that renewal and restoration is revealed in its final shape as the kingdom of God. So the key idea for tonight is this. The promise God made to Abraham is now fully realized in and through Jesus Christ. So uh, the reading we had, verse 8, Galatians 3, verse 8, says this. Just finding it. Literally this. Scripture anticipated this in the promise to Abraham. It goes on to say, all this was all laid out beforehand in Scripture. In other words, that the promise to Abraham actually is another proto-gospel. It's a glimpse, actually, of what God's going to do. We now look backwards through the Scriptures. Remember how Laura taught us that? And we look back and we see through Jesus that actually what God intended through Abraham is now brought to fulfillment. What he promised to Abraham, actually, was that he would go into all the world for all people to bring redemption. That's the Gospel, isn't it? So even in Abraham, there are seeds of what God was going to do down the line. Jesus, in other words, is the true Israel. He fulfills the law by being the faithful and obedient human that God wanted Adam to be, and then wanted Noah to be, and then wanted Abraham to be, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David, and everyone else that was called to live under the law. Jesus finally steps in and lives the life that they couldn't, but were called to. He keeps the covenant promise that Abraham and God made on behalf of all humanity. He keeps it. And through that, he reestablishes the rule and reign of God over his creation. We'll unpack that in a moment. So this idea of the kingdom of God is central to the four Gospels, and it's central to the fourth act in this drama. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love you to turn to Mark chapter 1. If you don't have one, there's some at the back. If you don't own one, Take it home, keep it, put your name in it, it's yours. We'd love you to have one. I love Mark's Gospel because um, it kind of cuts the chase. It's like detail, uh, light. It's like the action thriller version, you know. It's like it just goes straight in at the deep end and it's full of all the kind of signs, miracles, wonders. It keeps moving, you never get bored, it's exciting. Matthew, he kind of goes off on all sorts of like big theological trips, which is great, but you kind of need to understand it. Luke's a historian, so he goes into loads of detail, which is fascinating, but you can get a bit lost in that. And then John, he does the lovey-dovey stuff, you know, it's like, ooh. Uh, And they're all great, but I love Mark, because it's like, oh, yes, come on, this is the story. So we're in Mark tonight, chapter 1, verse 15. He records the first thing, as far as he's concerned, that Jesus said... Uh, in terms of his public ministry. And he says this, The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. That was Jesus' central message. That's the gospel. The kingdom of God has come near. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Now there are two words in Greek for time. There's chronos time and there's kairos time. We tend to think when we hear the word time, we think chronos. That's what we measure with our watches, chronological time. And that's important. But there's also this idea of kairos time. that This idea that within chronological time, there are moments, kairos moments. They can be brief millisecond moments, or they can be years and years and years, in which something profound and deep happens. You and I will have had kairos moments in our life. 
Moments where we've encountered God. Moments where we've been caught up in something of the heavenly realm, invading earth. Those moments when you've got lost in laughter and fun. Those moments where someone has said something to you and it's like, your world has changed. Kairos moments. The word here for time is kairos. The kairos moment has come. That long-awaited prophecy that one would come with healing in his wings, it's now happening. The kairos moment has come. And it's all about whether you've got eyes to see. There's a kairos moment. God has stepped into human history and he said the kingdom of God is near. And in a sense, we still live in that kairos moment. Because Jesus is still calling people to follow him. He hasn't finished yet what he started. Now notice Jesus does not explain what he means by the kingdom of God. Those who heard this language, they were very familiar with it. The Jewish people, they've been waiting a long time for the long-awaited Messiah. They've journeyed through many years where God has gone silent. There was the prophets that ends the Old Testament. But then there's an 800-year silence. Which is why when suddenly God starts speaking again through John the Baptist, this is a big deal. Because this is like, it's not that God spoke 20 years ago. It's like generation after generation after generation has held on to the story. They've passed it down faithfully to the next one. But they're waiting. They're still waiting. The people walking in darkness have been waiting. And suddenly, Kairos moment. God is coming. Can you imagine how exciting it would be? That's why the shepherds leave their sheep. You never do that. Why? The, the thing is happening. The thing that we heard about. Great grandpa told us would happen. It's happening. It's an amazing little moment in human history that changes everything. They had this expectation that at some point God was going to decisively act within human history in love, in power, to renew his creation to restore his reign over the whole world. And the entire mission of Jesus is that. To usher in the new kingdom of God. God's new creation work. God is finally going to do what it takes to bring about the restoration of his creation. To finish what he started. To do in and through Jesus what he couldn't ultimately do through Abraham and his descendants. And he's going to do it once and for all, forever, for everyone. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. God acts decisively in human history by calling yet another human to get his creation project back on track. Jesus, uh, some of the genealogies in the other Gospels are important because they link Jesus back into the family tree. He is from the line of David. Actually, it goes right back to Abraham. This is someone who's a true Israelite. And what God does, just like he calls Noah, just like he calls Moses, just like he calls Abraham, he calls Jesus to leave his land, to leave his home, and to go to a land he will show him. Do you remember the promise to Abraham? And he says, would you go into that land and will you live in such a way that you will be a light into the world? The difference is this time that the land that Jesus leaves is heaven. He leaves perfection and intimacy with God, and he steps down into the mess, the rubble of human history, and he makes it his home. So Paul says, he who, being in very nature equal with God, becomes nothing, humbles himself to take on flesh. That's how much God is committed 
to fulfilling the covenant. I shall be to you as you, as I should be, even if you are not to me as you should be. Put another way, Jesus is the true Abraham, in and through which the promises of God can finally be fulfilled. Now notice there's another line here, repent and believe the good news. If you've been around church for more than like 10 years, you will have heard almost certainly someone talk about repent and believe in terms that are unhelpful and unbiblical. And if you've ever been in big cities, at some point you may well have seen a street preacher with or without a megaphone, usually with if they're hardcore, shouting at people the gospel as they think it is. Which goes something like this. You're a sinner. Repent and believe the good news. Otherwise you're going to burn in hell forever. And what happens? People walk on by. They ain't interested. I was in London a couple of weeks ago. The same man that's on Oxford Street that was there when I was there 15 years ago. He's still there on the corner of Oxford Street and Regent Street shouting at people. Like, dude, will you shut up? I didn't actually say that to him. I was too scared. What we actually need to understand is Jesus is saying something more beautiful and compelling and wonderful than that. The word for repent in Greek is the word metanoia. And it literally means change what you think is about, change your mind about what you think is true. So here's what it is. It's like metanoia is like a change of mind. And what God wants us to do is have a revelation of the kingdom and of the king and a fresh understanding of what is real and true and to realize that what's real and true is not what we thought was real and true, that this isn't it, it's this. And to go, oh, I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to look anew. I'm going to look differently into the new revelation that I've seen and that I'm going to repent. It means to renew your mind, to change your mind. Which is why Paul says we, he prays that we be transformed by the renewing of our Minds. It's, it's simply about revelation and seeing. Can you see? Can you see? Are you open to this Kairos moment in human history that's for you? That's what repentance is. It's a change of mind. And then the word believe, it's not like them try and believe it in your head. It's this amazing idea. Of, the word is pisteo. Uh, and, and it's this idea of literally going, I'm going to now live into that reality. I'm going to change my behavior so it aligns with that revelation. So when I see that it's not okay to treat people like this, because that's not the way of the kingdom, I will stop treating people like this. It's discipleship. It's not mental assent to a theological idea. It's total lifestyle change. In other words, what Jesus is saying is the moment has come. God's kingdom has arrived. To embrace it, you must change how you think. And live according to that new understanding. That's the message of the gospel. It's good news because what he's saying is the kingdom has come. The thing that God promised he would do, the thing that he's been trying to do ever since Adam and Eve ate from the, ate, ate the apple has finally, finally begun to happen. And this time, because I'm doing it, it's going to be forever. And essentially Jesus says, are you in? Are you in? But if you're in, you're all in or nothing. Because it demands everything. If it's going to cost me everything, it's going to demand of you everything. So elsewhere, I'm off my notes, but he says, you're either for me or you're against me. 
You're either gathering or you're scattering. He says to one of the churches in the uh, book of Revelation, this is what I have against you. You're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. You're just lukewarm. You're like nice. Nice Christians. Half-hearted. Lukewarm. No! You want to follow Jesus Christ? It's all in. I want all in followers of Jesus in this church. Are you in? Are you all in? Good. Right. Um, Okay. So in his ministry, in his life, Jesus goes about the place teaching what the kingdom is like. Parables, sermons, stands on the boat in the water telling people he's on the side of a hill. He's doing it whilst at the same time demonstrating what it's like. So he feeds the 5,000. As an inspiration for the food bank. But notice, he doesn't just feed the 5,000. He feeds them. He meets their physical need. And while they're enjoying their sandwich, he then goes and addresses their spiritual need. Food bank is great, but we're not trying just to feed people. We're trying to feed people so they don't have to worry about that, so eventually they can encounter Jesus. That's why we're trying to do it. He goes about healing people. What's he doing? Why is he healing people? Why is that such a big deal for us to keep contending for that? Why? Because they're glimpses, aren't they? They're foretastes of what the world will be like when it's gloriously completed. There will be no sickness. There will be no death. And so healing comes now as a down payment on then. And so faith is saying, I'm going to ask for today what I know I'm going to get tomorrow. Come, Holy Spirit, bring healing. Physical healing, emotional healing, cultural healing, spiritual healing, every kind of healing. Because Jesus has come to reconcile all things unto himself. Everything is going to be made new. Not all new things, all things new. Really important that we get that distinction right. And he gathers around him this ragtag bunch of early followers. Those, anyone who says, I'm all in. If you're all in, you're in. And actually half of them aren't really all in, but he gives them kind of a bit of a head start. He says, oh, come on, you'll get there in the end. And this ragtag bunch of people, he starts to form this new creation community with, who we now call it church, who say, I'm going to live the way you live. I'm going to teach what you teach and live what you live and demonstrate what you demonstrated in your name and in your power. And so Gaheen and Bartholomew again, they say this. These miracles are like windows through which we catch glimpses of a renewed cosmos from which Satan and his demons have been cast out. Sickness and pain are to be no more. Death itself gone forever and the creation restored to its original beauty and harmony. No trace of sin or sin's effects will deface or defile God's new creation. Amazing. Now to understand how this is achieved, we have to understand the life, death and resurrection of Jesus in light of the Old Testament. And particularly the threads we've teased out so far. I've only got time tonight to briefly look at one lens, if you like, to help us see it a bit more clearly. But hopefully it will help. So stay in Mark and notice verses 2 and three. This is the story of John the Baptist. And we read this. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. In other words, John was prophesied about. One will come. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now the first thing you've got to notice is where is John? Where's John in the account that Mark gives us? Is he in the town square? Is he in the synagogue? 
No, he's in the wilderness. He's in the desert region. Now, John's an odd chap, right? He wears funny clothes, eats funny things. He's kind of like the first modern-day hippie. But he's onto it, and he does everything deliberately. Where was Israel wandering for 40 years? It's been liberated from slavery to Pharaoh and Egypt. It's been taken through the waters and into on, on, on a journey towards the promised land. But for 40 years, it wanders around where? In the desert. In the wilderness. This is where Israel met God. This is where God turned up and gave them the law and established them as a nation and commissions Abraham and then Moses and all these other people to work out this journey that they're called to, to as they head towards the promised land, to, to live out in such a way the promises of God that people would look and see. That's where they encounter God. It was their place of new beginning, in other words. And I think that John understands that what God's trying to say to people is there's a Kairos moment now. There's a new beginning happening. God's again on the move. 800 years of silence have suddenly gone. And here now God is speaking again. Prepare the way because I'm coming. And I'm coming to meet you in the wilderness because you're in the wilderness spiritually. You've forgotten what I'm like. You've forgotten the law. You've forgotten what worship is. You're lost. You're totally lost. But I've not forgotten my Abraham covenant commitment to you. You're still very good. And so I'm going to step in myself. And I'm going to find you. And I'm going to lead you out of the true, uh, the true slavery you're in. Slavery to sin and death. I'm going to give you a true exodus experience. I'm going to lead you into the true promised land of the new heaven and the new earth. The new creation kingdom of God. Here's what you've got to do. You've got to prepare, your way, prepare the way for the one who's going to do it. Do you see that? And so what happens is, uh, there's this message from this crazy prophet dude, John, prepare the way. In other words, have you got eyes to see? Have you got ears to hear? Are you aware of what God is doing in this Kairos moment? If you have, you will leave Jerusalem. You will leave the towns and villages. And you'll head out into the wilderness because you're that hungry to seek God. Do you want to meet with God? i tell you when the most powerful moments in my life I've encountered with God have been. They've been when I've been in my own wilderness. Strip bear. John is there. He's in the world preaching this gospel of uh, gospel preparation message. Prepare the way. He's coming. The long wait is over. Get ready. And people come out to hear John preach. Word gets out. That someone, the one that Isaiah said would come, he's come. That must mean the Messiah's on his way. Why would you want to miss out on that? What, what, seriously? What, why would you not get tickets for that gig? I mean, seriously, it's worth everything. So they come out. And those who respond to this message of repentance, of changing your mind, what do they do? What does John do? He baptizes them in the River Jordan. It's the same river that a thousand years earlier, Israel crossed over through uh, on its way into the promised land. Hello? What's God doing? By baptizing people in the river Jordan, God is through John signaling a new beginning. Are you going to come and be prepared to inherit the new exodus, the new start, the fresh commission? Are you going to be part of the the decisive act of, of God in human history? Are you going to join in? Are you in? That's essentially what the invitation of John is. And people do, they come, and they're baptized. And they're ready. 
They're ready. They've been cleansed from their sin. It's like, fresh start. Let's go. So, up rocks Jesus in verse 9. And there's this slightly awkward moment. Because he rocks up and says to John, I want to be baptized. And essentially John says, if you read the Matthew account, uh, no, like you don't need to be baptized. <laughs> like you're Jesus. You're the one that we're getting everyone else ready for. But Jesus insists on being baptized. Matthew records all the detail if you're interested. Why is that? I would suggest to you that to understand why, we need to remember where we got to last week. For Jesus to be the one in and through whom God acts decisively in human history, Jesus has to enter human history. God has made this eternal binding covenant commitment to Abraham and all his descendants that through one of them, well through them, he was going to redeem the world. So the Messiah has to be human. The Messiah has to come from within the people of God. And so Jesus has to become one of them. He's insisting on being baptized because he wants to make the story of Israel his story. He incarnates himself into creation, but actually he incarnates himself into the Israel story to become an Israelite because he cannot lead them out of something that he's not in. He has to step into the mess of human history and empathize in order to go forward with us and for us. So Tom Wright, who's normally right about everything, I think, says this. Jesus believed that the creator God had purposed from the beginning to address and deal with the problems within his creation through Israel. Israel was not just to be an example of a nation under God. Israel was to be the means through which the world would be saved. And that this would be accomplished through Israel's history reaching a great moment of climax in which Israel herself would be saved from her enemies and through which the creator God, the covenant God, would at last bring his love and justice, his mercy and truth to bear upon the whole world, bringing renewal and healing to all creation. Jesus knew what he was up involved in. He understood what he was part of. For creation to be redeemed and restored, the curse of sin and death has to be reversed. Remember we talked about that? Satan, the evil one, has to be crushed. And it's Jesus who does it. Remember that promise in Genesis 3, verse 15? That one will come to crush the snake and reverse the curse of sin and death? It's Jesus. Within the Old Testament sacrificial system, and if you're, if you're on track with Yobble reading, well done. We're into Deuteronomy. It's all this weird stuff, isn't it? Like, what the heck is going on? Well, what it is, is part of this Old Testament sacrificial system, this means by which God and his people could keep um, reconnecting despite the failure of Israel to fulfill its side of the covenant bargain, the covenant deal, the covenant promise. The only way you could fulfill the law, the only way you could offer yourself as a holy, perfect, and pleasing sacrifice is if you were a holy, blameless, sinless human. And no one could do it. There wasn't one. And so God creates this system of, a kind of, in a sense, alternative sacrifices, these animal sacrifices. They didn't solve the problem of covenant unfaithfulness. All they did is delay the consequences. They held them at bay. And so Paul says in Galatians 3, 11 and 12, he says this, Scripture backs this up. Utterly curses every person who fails to carry out every detail written in the book of the law. The obvious impossibility of carrying out such a moral program should make it plain that no one can sustain a relationship with God that way. It couldn't be done. So God says, I'll have to do it myself for you. 
The gospel declaration is that the Messiah, the long-awaited Son of God, has come. They were expecting that. What they weren't expecting was that the Messiah would be God himself. That's the ultimate plot twist, ladies and gentlemen. That God would go that far to do whatever is necessary to finish what he started, to, to make happen what he promised would happen. So put another way, put it simply, God becomes one of us so we can become like him again. He's the sinless saviour, the spotless lamb, the true Israelite, the true Adam. And through his life, death and resurrection, Jesus conquers sin and crushes death. He liberates the people of God from their slavery to sin and he leads us, them, us into the promised land of the new creation. Ladies and gentlemen, to be saved is to be saved from sin and death. Yes, but it's, as you have heard me say many times, saved for life in the promised land of the new heaven and the new earth. And the only way is to follow in the way of Jesus, who's already gone there for us, not as God, but as a human. And he doubles back for us. He says, no, come with me. I will be with you. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil. Why? Because I am with you. This isn't a God who's gone ahead and shouts back at us from the other side, make a good go of it, guys. Hopefully you'll make it. This is the God who makes the way for us and then becomes the way for us. And he says, are you in? Are you all in? Because, like, please don't disrespect me, basically. I don't think he actually says that. But essentially it's that. Are you all in? I was all in for you. Will you be all in for me? That's the call. Now let's delve a bit deeper, uh, verses 12 to 13. Uh, we see this, I love this. Uh, this is, oh, it's not on the screen. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. So Jesus is baptized. At once, says, Matthew, uh, says Mark. It probably wasn't at once, but it's Mark. Keep going. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. So notice the wilderness again. Uh, and he was in the wilderness how long? 40 days. Hello? He's mimicking, he's copying, he's, he's echoing, he's, he's referencing, hat-tipping 40 years. And he's tempted by Satan for 40 days. He's with the wild animals and angels attended him. Now immediately after his baptism, this is what happens, he's taken in by the Spirit. Why? Because if he's going to go for, a way for us, if he's going to create a way for us, and if he's going to enter into our story, he has to reverse the curse of sin and death. And so he has to undo what we did. So notice, if you read through the details, he faces the same temptation, ultimately, as Adam and Eve did. Not in the garden, but on the other side of the garden fence, in the Toho Rabohu, the uncreated wilderness. Because he's entered into the story, right? For him to reverse the curse of Adam and Eve, to reverse the curse of sin and death, he has to enter the world not as Adam found it, but as Adam left it. And so here he is in the wilderness, facing the same temptation Adam and Eve did. He chooses to trust God. Three times he's tempted to take upon himself the power and authority he could claim, he could use because he's God, in order to become an independent of God human. But he doesn't do that. He says, no, 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 I trust God. He trusts God. And in doing that, he starts to reclaim the ground for us. Because he looks at Satan and he says, no. 
Adam and Eve may have been tempted, but I'm not. I'm going to hold the line. And from this line onwards, I'm going to begin to reverse everything. Good news. Now, Mark promptly moves on to the next thing in the story. But Luke tells us something really important here. Verse 14 in Luke chapter 4 says this. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. He's led into the desert by the Spirit. He returns full of the power of the Spirit. Something happened in that moment, in that, uh, that encounter with the enemy where he resists temptation and he consecrates himself and he says, God, no, I stand here in the gap. No, I'm putting an end to this right now. Here's the line. I'm holding the line. The Spirit of God fills him with his power. And he comes back into Galilee and he begins to, pre- begins to preach and demonstrate the kingdom of God. Have a look at uh, verses 21 to 26. Chapter 1 of Mark. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue, began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, I love this, then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit, another sermon entirely, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Notice this. Like, people around him may not have seen who he was yet. They may not have had their revelation. But the evil spirits, they knew exactly who he was. And they ask him this question. Have you come to destroy us? Verse 25. Be quiet, said Jesus in his teacher voice. Doesn't actually say that. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. I'd love to have been there. Everyone else would be like. Jesus essentially answers the question. Yeah. Yeah, I've come to destroy you. Yeah, because I'm here to reverse the curse of sin and death. And it begins with resisting temptation. And now it continues with me standing the ground and going, no. No, get out of him in Jesus' name. I'm redeeming that which has been lost. And so 1 John verse, uh, 1 John chapter 3 verse 8 is reinforced here. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So Leslie Newbigin, Anglican bishop. I mean, this is an Anglican bishop. Check out what he says. Jesus was manifested to destroy the works of the devil, not to submit to them. This whole ministry is portrayed in the Gospels as a mighty onslaught on the works of the devil. Whether these took the form of sickness and demon possession among the people, or of hypocrisy, cruelty, hard-heartedness among the rulers. And his whole ministry is interpreted as the breaking in of the reign of God into the life of the world to release those whom Satan has bound. That's what Jesus does. Let's not just put him in the moral teacher category. Let's not have a bit of kind of, you know, therapeutic moral deism where we kind of have Jesus on the side to make us feel better. Jesus turned up and he does everything necessary to liberate you and I from the bondage of sin and death. It's good news. There's a Kairos moment. Are you all in? So through his life, he models this and teaches it and contends for it, but it's on the cross that he fully and finally achieves it. He dies in our place. The wages of sin are death. Jesus takes all the sin of the world upon him and dies in our place. The one who should never be on a cross, the only one who was without sin, becomes sin for us 
in order to reverse the curse of sin and death. He is the final and full sacrifice on the real altar, in the real temple of the heaven and earth creation. And he makes atonement for all the sin of the world. Atonement means at one if you like, with God. It brings resolution to the disconnect. The holy, sinless one stands in the gap for us and says, no, no more. So we've got a little video to show. We're running really late tonight, but it's all right, isn't it? We've got a little video to show that captures this. Those of you who are Lord of the Rings fans, you'll know this. Gandalf uh, is the Christ figure. And this is the little clip where he takes on the beast who represents evil and Satan. Are we ready to roll? Go for it. Dark fire will not avail you. Flame of Undun! That's what Jesus does. He stands in the gap, says, you shall not pass. And ultimately, he pays the price. Now, what we know is that three days later, the power of God raises him to new life. The same spirit that called creation into being calls Jesus back to life. And he places him where? On Resurrection Sunday morning, where is Jesus found? Anyone remember? In a garden. Hello! He's dressed up as the gardener. He's the new Adam, the true Adam. We're meant to see he's starting again. It's all new. Because sin and death are no more. The true exodus has happened. Paul says in Colossians, Jesus is the second Adam. He lives the life that Adam should have lived, could have lived. And he opens up a way for us. You and I are invited into this story. We're invited to make that our truth, make that our reference point, make that the thing that changes everything. So theologians call this cosmic recapitulation. Uh, Here we go. Uh, It's the big U-turn, okay? This is important. We're going to land with this and take communion. Creation, that's act one. God establishes the first humanity. Things go wrong. The fall, sin and death come into the world. It's going south. So badly that actually Israel, despite the law, despite God with them through um, the temple and the tabernacle and all of that stuff, they fail to keep the law. It's never going to happen. Jesus steps in. He's sinless and therefore he can fulfill the law. He is the true Israel. He reverses the curse of sin and death. Do you see the reversal? Defeats sin and death and ushers in a new creation. It's what's called cosmic recapitulation. It's a big theological idea, which we've just explained. Do you like my PowerPoint? I think I'm quite good. Thank you. Thank you.
What does all of this mean for us? What it means is that you and I are invited to follow Jesus and to allow him to make that our story. (coughs) To say to him, I need liberating from sin. I need liberating from death. I need you to come into my life and lead me out of that and into that. I say yes to that, but you need to do it. I need to follow you. I'm going to choose to follow you. I'm going to choose to be all in. And God, would your power that was made perfect in his weakness, but is so powerful that it raises him to new life, would you raise me to new creation life? Now, in faith, as a down payment on when it will happen in full at the end of time. We have this wonderful phrase in the Anglican church, when someone dies, we go to a funeral service, we celebrate their life, hopefully well lived, and we say they're now resting in peace, but they will rise in glory. But we live resurrection lives now, in part, by faith, in the power of the Spirit, because Jesus has doubled back for us, and he's begun to establish it now. The future is breaking into the present through the church, through you and I, who say yes to that. And he says, now look with one eye to that horizon, and live full throttle towards that. And as you go, serve, 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 serve. Why? Because people need to know that I've done it. I've done it. And now it's a case of bringing it to bear on the earth. So Brené Brown, who's amazing, she says this, and I'm going to finish with this, in her latest book, worth reading. She says this, Our job is not to deny the story of brackets of our lives, but to defy the ending, to rise strong, recognize our story, and rumble with the truth, Jesus, until we get to a place where we think, yes, this is what happens. This is my truth, and I will choose how the story ends. Guys, it's entirely up to you. Do you want a story that only makes sense because Jesus did it? Do you want to get to the end of your life and be going, wow, look what he did in me and then through me? Or do you want to just wish that maybe you'd ended up with a life like that? Here's how it happens. You get up every single morning and you say to the Lord, I'm all in. I'm all in. And that's what we do when we come to the table. We'll come back to Jesus and we say, I'm in. Let's stand.